Hey friends, welcome to Conversations with Kenzie, a podcast hosted by yours truly, Kenzie Brenna. No topic goes unturned here. We talk about everything with everyone. We like to get raw and sometimes we get heavy and sometimes we swear. So I'm warning you now. Also, we are working remotely, so audio quality between host and guest may differ. Lastly, check out our show notes for giveaways, fun promotions, or discounts to our favorite stuff. Enjoy the show. I want to tell you about one of my favorite go-to food staples in my home. It is Avive Smoothies. Avive Smoothies are a three-step blender-free smoothie. Yes, blender-free. Each smoothie comes in its own frozen wheel with these little pods. And if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know that I'm absolutely obsessed with them. And you pop out these pods in your favorite mason jar or shaker. You add in your favorite liquid. So I add in oat milk or hot water if you are impatient like me. But you wait about 20 minutes if you're not going to do the hot water trick. And you end up shaking it afterwards and it turns into this beautiful smoothie that's so good, so tasty. Absolutely love it. The smoothies have no added sugar in them, no artificial flavors or preservatives. They are gluten-free. They are vegan. They are non-GMO. For those of you who care about that, they are also certified organic and there's free shipping. Free shipping. We love free shipping. I also have a link in the show notes today as well as a code for you. You can use Kenzie Brenna 30 to save on your purchase. They have a completely incredible customizable online smoothie subscription that's available on their website and it's commitment free. So good, but they're also available in over 3000 grocery stores across Canada and the US. I love them. I know you love them. If you end up trying them, please let me know which ones you try and which ones end up becoming your favorite. So drink up and enjoy. Okay. Hello, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. Hello. I'm so excited to chat with you today. You have honestly been one of my favorite therapist accounts for so long now. And I have no idea how I didn't reach out sooner. It was kind of like one of those things where I'm like, oh, wait, we haven't had you on yet. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm so happy we were able to make this happen. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so flattered by that because there are a lot of therapists to follow. <laughs> yes. And you are one of my favorite influencers that really like just does so so much good with your platform, which is just so refreshing. Oh, thank you. That means a lot coming from you. That means a lot because I have learned so much from your account and I've really appreciated it that I've really appreciated the fact that like you always come from a place of nuance. Like yeah. I know that you and I have similar politics, but I do really feel like you you add in a lot of middle ground. And that's yeah. I personally find that that's can be sometimes tricky to find within therapist accounts, if I'm going to be honest, at least from yeah. my perspective. That's just from my perspective. That's my experience. But um, I really appreciate your account because you happen to post up a lot of middle ground stuff, which I think is really helpful because I think that it adds nuance and it adds um, just like certain points of clarity to have people consider, which I don't find that often. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I love everything that you share. We definitely uh, agree on politics, but we also post a lot of nuance. And I think it's just, I think it's really important. And funny enough, as a therapist myself, 
I feel like I live in nuance every day. Like it's hard for me to be black and white about things because when you see hundreds of people with all different experiences, with all different things that work for them, Mm. I really struggle with, I don't know how anyone can just post something and be like, this is right. Because I don't know, my job as a therapist is to help like the person figure it out. Right. Totally. Absolutely. And that's what I think that I appreciate that because you're like not enforcing your own beliefs on people. You're like helping others try to figure it out for themselves. But of course, like it's impossible. It's also, I feel like it's also sort of an impossible task because, you know, therapists aren't fully objective and they're not fully distanced. And um, like, you know, we put therapists and doctors, I would say like doctors in general on this like authoritative pedestal and like almost as if like they're a little bit godlike and that's just not true. Like you guys have your own, your own biases that you're working through, your own shit that you're working through, you're human just as much as anybody else. And I was actually, I'm I'm curious before we actually jump into, because I would love to know would love to know about your relationship with social media and having a practice and what that was like, like, you know, entering into the social media world as a therapist, because I've talked about it with my therapist, you know, I'm like, I'm like, yeah. oh, have you ever, you know, but I, so I'd love to get into that, but I actually want the listeners to just hear a little bit more from you about who you are. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about your background and um, how you, how you ended up a therapist and where you are right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm a licensed therapist. You might know me on Instagram from Therapy for Women. I have a practice based in Philadelphia, but we also have therapists across the country just through the pandemic. That was a shift that we made. Um, I'm also sober. I've been in sobriety for a little over seven years now, and I just wrote a book about it. And yeah, I really just try to come from a place of you know, I I call myself kind of a relatable therapist. I struggled a lot growing up with seeing therapists that I put on pedestals that never shared at all about themselves. And I just didn't connect to them. I had an eating disorder and an addiction growing up. So I saw a lot of therapists and it wasn't until I found one who was, who disclosed a little bit. And she kind of shared that she was in recovery and she wasn't perfect, that that gave me the space to be honest and like work through some of that shame. And once that happened and I had that really transformative experience, I just fell in love with therapy and I became inspired to be a therapist. Oh, that's so beautiful. And thank you for sharing about that. I'm curious. I didn't know that you struggled with an eating disorder. What eating disorder did you struggle with? Bulimia. Very, very bulimic. Wow. And I had so much shame about just, and that's why I love a lot of your content, Kenzie, of just, I had a lot of shame over food, what it looked like, feeling disgusting, feeling gross because of, you know, I purged. Mm. So that was something that took a long time to work through. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I 100% can empathize with that feeling for sure, for sure. And you said you also struggled with um, addiction? Yes. Yeah, so I was addicted to – I mean, I wasn't physically addicted to alcohol, but I struggled a lot with my alcohol use. I was very addicted to Adderall in college, which just went hand-to-hand with my eating disorder, it was like Mm. the perfect complement for that. And that's kind of how I got into it was I loved that it killed my appetite. And then, yeah, I drank uh, way to excess and um, 
finally got sober. And I actually stopped drinking because I kept relapsing in my eating disorder when I would drink. Mm. Um, I would purge and binge when I, when I got drunk. Um, and that was a big catalyst for realizing I couldn't drink in a, in a safe way. Mm. Yeah. That was one of the biggest reasons why I stopped drinking actually, which isn't, it's, it's weird. It's almost like it's a false positive because you're stop, you don't drink because when you drink, you binge. And so you're like, I don't want to binge. So I'm going to stop drinking, but you're, it's not that you, you're not, not drinking anymore because you want to have a different relationship with your body and a different relationship with substances. You know, right. it's like it's this, it's this, it's it, so it's it is a positive thing that you know you're that you're abstaining from alcohol, but you're abstaining from alcohol because you're kind of feeding this other disorder. Absolutely, and it took me a long time to really. I struggled a lot, which is you know com- kind of the premise of the book. I struggled a lot with calling myself an alcoholic. Did that fit? Was that right? And that's kind of where my whole philosophy comes from, that we should be able to explore alcohol regardless of calling ourselves an alcoholic or labeling ourselves. We should just be able to question it. Yes, 100%. And how how long after, you know, struggling with bulimia and struggling with alcohol did you end up becoming a therapist? Yeah. So I got into recovery right from my eating disorder, right as I was starting grad school, but I kept drinking during grad school, at least for half of it. And I was actually drinking while working in an addiction rehabilitation facility. And I would come to work hungover and I was very much in denial that, you know, I thought I was different than the people who I was working with who were Mm. drinking. And, um, I had, you know, my therapist tried to help me because I realized I was drinking maybe too much and I kept relapsing in my eating disorder. So she was kind of like, why don't you try to take a break from drinking? Hmm. Um, I lied about being successful in that. It was, she, she recommended I do 30 days. I like didn't count certain weekends and, you know, mm-hmm. I think it was more like two and a half weeks and I said it was 30 days. And then um, my last night that I drank, it was Labor Day, and I drank so much that when I woke up the next morning, I taught yoga completely drunk, and I don't remember. And I was a yoga teacher at the time. It was a very big part of my identity, and I also relapsed again in my eating disorder that night. I binged and purged, and um, yeah, that. and then I had to go straight to work to go work at the addiction rehab facility, Mm. and that was... You know, I say in my book, like it wasn't, um, I'd had those moments before, you know, Mm. it wasn't my worst moment for sure. I put myself in a lot of dangerous situations, Mm -hmm. but I did have a moment that I chose to listen to where I was like, how are you going to be able to feel good about yourself and be a therapist when this is like your behavior, when you're acting like this? And that was the last night that I drank. Wow. So the drive to become a therapist overcame the need to cope with alcohol in particularly in that moment. It was like kind of like this decision where you're like, okay, if we're going to do this, then we're going to really do this. Yes. Yes. Because I used to feel like how could I, I mean, a big part of it was, so I struggled with bulimia much, much longer than I struggled with alcohol. I mean, I start, I became bulimic when I was like 14. So, and it, I, I really struggled with get like with, you know, getting into recovery with that. And I used to have visions of 
what would I do if I was a therapist and I was binging and purging in between sessions? Hmm. Like, what if that happened? And that was so horrific to think about for me. I felt like that would just be so, how could I, you know, be a therapist and and be doing that, that that was a big driving force hmm. in my recovery. And that must happen. I mean, like there, there has to be therapists oh, yeah. that are really struggling with things that are struggling with the exact things that they're giving advice on or that they're listening to in their sessions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it can be, there's different, you know, facets of it. You know, on some level, I think the pandemic was really interesting for therapists because in general, we're kind of taught to try to not give someone therapy on an issue you're currently dealing with. Um, Mm. And the pandemic was wild, right? Because as a therapist, you're going through the pandemic and every one of your clients is all at the same time. So it was a lot for a lot of us to navigate. Totally. I thought about that one with my own, with my therapist. She was so busy and so booked up and she was like, it's sad that I'm this booked up. Um, And, you know, and like what, just how the pandemic was also affecting you guys. I mean, it's the same thing with those working in healthcare. That yes. Everyone's just trying to take care of someone else. And again, that like comes back to the point of just like, you guys are very, very, very much human yourselves. But that, and I'm curious, just coming back to like, you know, therapists struggling or, you know, if they're struggling with the things that they're supposed to be giving advice on or that they're listening to in their sessions is it possible that that's okay that um you know like a therapist could be struggling with something and be able to also give advice on it i remember this one yoga teacher and she said that she can't do a handstand but she can teach a handstand like she was like she was like i don't have the ability to do it right now but i can i'm still qualified to teach it. So I'm wondering if that's the same here. It might not be, but I'm super curious about your thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely, I mean, I think about, you know, I don't have kids, but I have clients who have kids and I can absolutely uh, help them with, you know, postpartum or the stress of motherhood or whatever. So you don't need to actually have the same experience or have healed from the mm-hmm. same experience as someone to make a difference, especially when it comes to therapy, because as a therapist, a lot of what we do isn't giving advice. It's helping and guiding someone towards the best thing for them. I think with eating disorders and addictions, it can get a little murkier with um, how do I explain this? I think it can just get a little murkier with par- I mean obviously we're not able to be completely impartial, but we try to be as neutral as possible in terms of people being able to make their own choices and not be guided by our mm. experiences. So I think that can get a little trickier with eating disorders specifically. Mm. Um I think that like thin practitioners specifically right can often treat, you know, their clients that are a different body type very differently and very Mm. in a not okay way. So I think about that's how bias can absolutely filter in and stuff like that. Um, But yeah, a good therapist should, is going to be able to discern their stuff from someone else's stuff for sure. I just knew personally for myself, I had been wanting to get into recovery from my eating disorder. I hated being bulimic. I was suffering so much. Mm. I was really suicidal at one time. 
And I just felt like, I don't think I could help people and be fully emotionally present with them and like do the, the emotional kind of labor it requires to be a therapist if I was actively in a place of binging and purging still. Right. Okay. I totally, that all completely makes sense. And is that the discernment, the discernment of a therapist being able to separate their shit from their client's shit, to put it so eloquently. Yeah. Um, is that something that you guys are taught? Is that something that that is like that you go when you're taking certain courses that you're taught how to do? Or is that something that you're expected to just do naturally? Uh, you are taught how to do it. I mean, it's, you know, it's a it's a messy thing to teach. <laughs> There's not really steps always, but it is why therapists are very much, almost every grad school, part of the requirement is you must go to therapy yourself mm. um, so that you can have that experience where we're really, um, even when you get supervision as a therapist, I mean, therapists are supposed to be in supervision forever, even after they have their license, because there is an understanding that sometimes uh, we can get too close to a situation. We can lose perspective. We need someone outside of ourselves to check ourselves and offer a different perspective because, right, like your frustration with a client or what you, you know, you want your client to feel better or whatever might cloud um, your judgment or how you're treating the client, for example. Right. Okay. That, that absolutely, absolutely makes sense. Okay. Thank you so much for- yeah taking me through that. I'm, I was just so curious. And it does kind of connect to this element of social media that I'd love to explore with you. you yes. Know. How did you decide to start posting up as a therapist on social media? Um, because I know that when I talked to my therapist, she was really, she does not want to do it. She thinks that it would, she doesn't know how it would affect um, you know, her clients like seeing yeah. her online and stuff. So I'm curious, like, how did you make that decision? to do it. Yeah. Um, so I made the decision really because I hate networking events. Right. <laughs> um, I don't like going and meeting big groups of people. I had started my, I, I started when I started my private practice and I needed a way to connect to clients. I didn't like networking. I was seeing a lot of stuff on social media where people started to talk about mental health more, but often it wasn't from a therapist. So I was frustrated seeing a lot of times incorrect mental health information. Um, and I felt kind of like a lot of the things that I know could really help people. And they seem really basic to me, but they aren't to other people. Um, so yeah, that was kind of how I started. And it just kind of kept going from there. And how do you think that when you're on online as a therapist, how do you feel when you see other therapists giving terrible advice? Because sometimes <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you yeah. and this is going to be super, this might be a little bit controversial to say, but sometimes I feel like therapy and politics mm. has a moment of separation. And other times I feel like politics 100% has to inform therapy. Like again, kind of not, it's not an either or, it's kind of like a both and, like there needs to be the separation of politics and also this integration of politics because things are political, bodies are political. And so having certain political frameworks are really important. But then sometimes I see it and I'm like, this is so 
problematic. Like sometimes I see stuff and I'm like, this is so problematic and this shouldn't be coming from a therapist. And this is so ideological that like, what's going to happen to this person's client? Like that, those are certain things that I think, um, when I go through stuff. So I'm curious, like how have you seen stuff like that before? And like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel very much like you feel where, yes, like politics has to inform therapy. I mean, a huge thing, like if I like, I mean, just in terms of, for example, so many of my clients were extremely impacted by, right? Like the pandemic. So we talked about that a lot and it wouldn't be something that I could separate from the therapy room. Mm. I work with a lot of women with eating disorders and a lot of that becomes body politics, which you can't separate. Um, But there did become this thing that happened on social media during the pandemic that I felt like was unhelpful where, um, how do I explain this? I think that it became a thing where if someone is not blatantly, obviously, all the times outright talking about and supporting this, it means that they don't support it. And I think that's where things got messy because it almost became this like proving game of proving who would stand up the most. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, it felt inauthentic Mm. sometimes. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's very interesting too, as a therapist, I mean, I think potentially the new generation of therapists under me, um, maybe hopefully their, uh, their schooling was a little different than mine, but as a therapist, you are taught never to talk about politics mm. ever. So it's a very interesting shift. Like I think there's a lot of change coming to the field of psychology. It's very much needed change. Most of the field is, you know, white women and most of the field that was created that's at the top is white men and it's very patriarchal. Um so I think it's still being figured out, I guess, is too. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. It does it does feel like everything's always getting figured out yeah. and <laughs> and you know forever changing especially within psychology and psychiatry. I mean like they are spaces that are still so far behind certain physical yes. sciences that you know and they're still so stigmatized that like when people get frustrated with me- the mental health space I understand it and I'm and I also I feel so much compassion just for the history of psychiatry and psychology, just because of how late it started, you know? Absolutely. People don't realize that the separation of like, just like little things, like the separation of like church and state really informs psychiatry and psychology. Because before when you were struggling with something mentally, you were seen as like sick from your soul um, or possessed. And that's obviously not what we, most of us have come to understand and agree today. Although I do see like, again, like some of these people sort of rejecting these like modes of psychology because of the fact that it's based in the systems that we have today. And I'm not a hundred percent sure about it. Like sometimes I feel like it does more damage than good. Like there's this uh, small space that I've seen online, you know, talking about that um, like lived experience is much, is, is a much better framework than looking at data collected by people who don't have the lived experience of those that they're collecting data from and kind of 
I don't know, like almost like there's this sort of infantilization that has like happened in certain Mm. spaces and it makes me, it makes it really hard for me to connect with because not that like I do inner child work with my therapist right now. If people are interested, I'm doing family systems work and I do like a lot of like inner child work and I do like a lot of parts work and it's wonderful and it's great and it's working for me right now. I switched over to that therapist from a cognitive behavioral therapist. And so I've done, you know, like more of things like that are more like heady and intellectual and conceptual versus something that's like a little bit more body based and something that feels a little bit more like heart based in a way. Like I feel like parts Mm -hmm. work feels so heart based. I don't know how else to describe it, but and then I see like the, like these like people online that are, you know, rejecting just psychology in general and that are just rejecting all systems, like kind of like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. And sort of like this thing where it's like, it's okay if you want to like play with your childhood toys, or it's okay if like all day today you have to take care of your inner child. And it just seems like it's almost like this like regression in a way. And of course, and of course, everybody's like waiting for the and. And of course, who the fuck am I to tell people to like not do those things? Like I'm not, you know, I'm not qualified. I don't know what I'm talking about. I just like look at things and I'm like, that intuitively sounds like off, you know, but I don't know. And you must see a lot of it just because you are a therapist and you must just like come across some of that like a little bit more than I do. But if you wanted to respond to any of that, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you know, Kenzie, actually about the history and stuff like that, because that's often something I try to share with people to kind of provide context for how young the therapy field Mm. is and its roots and, you know, how not that long ago people were locked up in asylums. Not that long ago, we didn't even know that the brain was capable of changing. Mm. So that's all really got good context to know. Um, And yeah, as a therapist, I do see that. I see a lot of, I think what's also really hard with the intersection on social media is extreme things get more interaction. They get liked, they get shared, they get amplified um, on both ends, right? So it seems like a lot of times what is often seen is exact opposites. Either it's that like toxic hustle culture, like nobody's coming, you need to save yourself. You know, um, you can have any life you want with no, you know, acknowledgement of privilege or anything else. Or it's kind of like, you know, I see it a lot with boundaries and that's why I try to talk about boundaries as like boundaries are great, but they're not going to fix everything. And sometimes we need less firm boundaries because I feel like on social media, a lot of times it's just like, if someone's mean to you, cut them off, don't like engage with them, like screw them. You can do whatever you want. And it's like, you can. And I think what's missing is, is this helpful? Like Mm. you can cut people off if you want, but No relationship with anyone is ever going to be perfect. And people get frustrated with me sometimes because um, I forget what I posted. I posted (laughs) something about, I posted last week about like, sometimes people get overwhelmed and anxious and they're not trying to ignore you by not texting you back or whatever. Hmm. And people were like, well, what about uneven friendships? I can't do this. And like, again, I'm not telling you what to do. You have a right to not engage in certain friendships. But I also feel like there's like, grace that's missing. There's the idea that maybe your friendship isn't perfectly equal. Maybe you message someone first, but if you value that friendship, it doesn't matter. If that Mm. friendship makes a difference in your life, then like, who cares? 
Right. Totally. And that that's sort of where I, I, I come from that place as well. Like it's impossible to say everything in one social media post. Like the yes. other day I made a post on what we mean when we say that you know, uh, like technically we are promoting obesity online and thank you. I really appreciate it. And the post was, was just, was just, was just about that phrase. And I didn't, and I, and I knew as I was making it, I'm like, people are going to say like, I knew that people were going to criticize some of it for sure. And I did get, and I did, I got, I got the criticisms that I thought that I was going to get, which people were saying like, uh, basically, in the post, I said, you know, we're not saying we're not promoting a sedentary lifestyle and eating high palatable foods. What we're saying is whatever. And I knew that some people were going to say, like, well, what you're saying by saying that is that you're uh, mm. saying it's morally bad if people do that. And I'm like, no. And that is a whole other topic on healthism and yeah. what it means to be healthy and, you know, separating health between ethics and morals. And I was like, that's genuinely not what this post is about. I've done previous posts on that. Just this is the topic. And what I find so insufferable online is that, is that like constant need for validation of all perspectives all at once in one yeah. post. And that's just me being like sensitive to it. Cause obviously like I'm sure that I've done that too, where I've like mess, where I've like commented on something. I'm like, I'm like, and like, what about blah blah blah? Um, when that's not the topic at hand, but it it does get a little bit tricky when you say things and you're like, can't you just like add in your own nuance here, or can't you add right. that into your own experience and like know that obviously this just pertains to this one topic? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you, Kenzie. I think that is what's so hard, and I think what is missing is like there's not grace given or there isn't to me. I wish people would look at, I I mean, it's hard when you have a viral post or a post that does well and someone knows nothing about you. Right. And they're making assumptions based on this one post. Mm. So they don't know the work you've done or the posts you've done on healthism or other topics. And I think that's, what's so, so hard because it's hard for us, I think as humans to give people grace and see nuance um, and not do that whole, what about, stuff if we don't see the person as a whole person and we're just viewing a piece of content. Right. Totally. And and that must that has to come up with you because therapy is so subjective. Like if you post up something on boundaries, then people are going to come at you and be like, well, what about my dad? He's a dick. He hits me. And you're like, okay, well that's obviously not good. Right. You're like, that's very clearly not good. And I'm not saying like, well, maybe you should give him a hug. And like, you know, I'm not saying you're like, you're not saying those things, but it just seems that some type of common sense, I think, is, and I mean this, and I put myself into this category too, um, but it does feel like social media has fragmented like some of our common sense a- in a way of of just like slowing down and like trying to like make sense of like what someone is saying before adding in like our thoughts or whatnot, um, which I'm not perfect at at all because that's what social media is designed to do. Social media is designed to make right. you like it like, you know, instant hyper palatable, this like kind of like what you're saying, like stuff that's like extreme and going viral and just like you got to add in your thoughts without thinking of them. And it's like a it's a hyper normal environment. And so that's like what social media is designed to do as well. 
And I, I'm actually Absolutely. curious, um, when it came to you struggling with bulimia and struggling with what's the, what is like, I know that terminology has changed. Like if I say alcoholism, is that right? Or str- like, what's the right way that you- it would be alcohol the- use disorder. Okay. So when you were struggling with alcohol use disorder, what would you have done if you had access to social, like, do, were you on social media when you were going through that? Uh, I guess your bulimia started when you were quite young. Um, and I'm not actually, I'm not hundred percent sure how old you are, but if, but I know that if I had access to this type of social media, I was struggling with the things I struggled with. I have no idea where I would be today. Like I, it would have just made it so much worse. So I'm curious, how do you think that it would have affected you? Totally. Um, so I, I was still struggling when Instagram first debuted, I think in 2012. So I was on it a little, but it wasn't the way it was now. I mean, I grew up with like Facebook and stuff like that, which definitely didn't help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. For so sure. yeah, I am and definitely MySpace. afraid. Yeah. Yes. My space. Um, I, so I agree with you. I think it would have been much, much worse if I would have had access to this kind of content, especially TikTok. While there's some great stuff about TikTok and I am on TikTok and like it, um, it scares me with just how much you can't, because of the for you page, you can't really like block and unsubscribe from people and Mm. you don't have as much control over the content you see, it seems. Right. So that's that like definitely, I mean, all of those, like what I ate in a day, because I was also like orthorexic for a bit too. And I just, oh my God, I would have really gone down a rabbit hole. Cause I already, even without Instagram, when I was in college, I would do these crazy cleanses. I mean, I bought a freaking dehydrator for my room. I was like on a raw food diet for a while, like right while, right. while drinking insanely too. So yeah, I can't even imagine. So I'm curious, you brought up the, what I eat in a day and I'd love to know your thoughts on this. And by the way, like n- I should tell the listeners, these are none of the questions that I sent to you <laughs> in our email. So if at any point you're like, you're like, no, I'm not going to answer this. That's totally okay. I completely understand, um, which we will get to absolutely because I'm really, yeah. really excited to talk about your book. Um, I just got the g- digital copy for it and I skimmed through some pages, although I can't re- I can't read too much on my computer just because of screens, but yes. it looks so good and you're such a great writer. So this is Thank it's you. honestly going to be incredible. Um, but you you talked about what we eat in the day and um, you know, like problematic videos like that. I come from a space where I actually really like what I eat in the day videos because I mm. am still a little bit I don't want to say food obsessed, but I am like, I mean, I love food. Food's so great. Like my love it's, we love it. Um, but I also am just so genuinely curious, like what people eat. I love, and it doesn't come from a place of disorder. Like it's not like, it doesn't come from a place of comparison. It comes from a place of genuine interest. And so I just recently started doing TikToks, which you're absolutely incredible on there. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank if you. <laughs> don't follow you on there and Instagram, they have to. Um, but I, and I noticed that there were these fat women or mid-sized women that started doing like, here's what I eat in a day since I don't diet anymore. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I am going to do a video of that, of, of what I eat in a day. And I know that it's, I know that there are going to be people who don't want to see it. And so of course I'm going to like let people know beforehand that I'm doing it. But there are some times where I know that there are people that aren't going to like it and I want to do it 
anyways. Have you ever felt like any of that with your content where you're like, I know that people aren't going to love this, but it does feel like I have integrity with this decision and I really want to talk about this? Yes. Yes, definitely. I love it. Um, Tell me everything. (laughs) (laughs) I also, just as a little aside, I think I get most triggered by the what I eat in a day videos when they're like very, very thin young women who I can see myself or my clients wanting to emulate and Mm. eat exactly what they ate. I actually really like seeing the variety and I think it could be helpful for a lot of us. Like I love all the cooking stuff on TikTok. Like, right. Like Emily Marco. That's great. Yeah. Marky Marco. Malarkey. I don't, I can't, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But we know who she is. The Emily. Yes. We know yeah. who she is, Emily with the salmon and the rice and the whole thing. And so she's, inspiring. Yeah. And my friend Dana, who is um, midsize, she was talking about, she was just like, Emily has kind of like given this whole trend of like thinner women, like having like full meals and yeah. getting people to like eat a little bit more. And I do think that that's like a positive thing as well. So anyways, but, but continue on to your, um, your story of <laughs> knowing that people might not love what you post, but you're going to do it anyway. Um, I feel like I'm a little more adventurous sometimes on TikTok or on Twitter because I don't have as many followers there. Um, but I love Taylor Swift and I do these Taylor Swift therapy videos and people respond and tell me they're problematic because they think that I'm giving therapy to people. And I just disagree and I can see what, where they're coming from. I had a pop sugar article that came out that people commented on and said that this was problematic because I'm pretending like I know things that I don't know. Cause I kind of frame it as like, if you're, if you can't stop listening to this song, this is my guess for what I think you're going through and what lyrics you relate to and why. Oh, I love that. We so it are, is kind you're of. You're so creative. I love that. <laughs> it came because I happen to have a lot of Swifties that are clients. And it came because I did this little video where I said, my favorite sessions with clients are when um, they tell me what Taylor Swift song they can't stop listening to. And I know exactly why they can't stop listening to it based on, you know, the work we've been doing essentially. And then people started saying, well, I can't stop listening to this song. What does this mean about me? And obviously it's tongue in cheek. I don't actually like, I'm not actually trying to diagnose Diagnose anyone. (laughs) Um, It's like kind of funny, but I also just love Taylor Swift. I think her words are so beautiful. Her lyrics are so powerful and it's kind of my way of like dissecting them from a therapeutic context. Oh my God. Yeah. Can it just be fun? Yeah. Can it just, today I posted up on I posted up these like funny little Disney doodles that was just like, oh, Cinderella, like you really gave yourself up to him after a glass slipper. And it was just like, and it was just going through these like famous Disney princesses and talking to like a therapist giraffe and the therapist giraffe was like giving them shit, you know? And it was just like, it was like, wow, like we need, you know, Sleeping Beauty. It was like, we need to talk about consent while you're asleep, you know, like little stuff like it was just, and it was supposed to be funny. And I had some people mention it. They're like, wow, this is 2015 feminism. You know, this is not the take that. And I was like, what are you, this is honestly, this is just light. I swear to God, I wasn't even, I'm not thinking about, I'm not thinking about making it any deeper than this. And the same thing when I get inspired, like I am a a huge Swifty, which like I have to be careful because like this episode will become about Taylor Swift, but like, yeah. (laughs) Um, But 
Like I would love watching that video, not because I actually am going to like go to my therapist and say like, okay, I found therapy for women on TikTok. And, you know, I'm like, these are the Taylor Swift lyrics that I'm digesting this week. Can we go into it? It's just fun. It's honestly just fun. And it's just like, oh, maybe I do feel a way about this. Or like, maybe that is something like, it's just supposed to be fun. It's not, it's not the hot and heavy. It's not the hard and deep stuff that we're always like, that people are looking for. It's just supposed to be fun. Yeah. And it is. I think that is like the difference a little bit between TikTok and Instagram. It's gotten Mm. a little messier with reels and with people, you know, it's very interesting. Like I don't post those on Instagram because I, people don't like them (laughs) on Instagram, which is fine. But people like if people loved them, I would put up with the negative feedback, but people don't really connect to them for some reason on Instagram. Right. Um, But it's just interesting. I mean, I remember one of my first TikToks that I did that I put as a reel, it was like me um, talking about some trauma symptoms or something. And someone like freaked out and said, how dare I smile? in my video while talking what? about such an important topic like trauma that I was making light of it. And I was like, oh, well, this is the difference between TikTok and Instagram. Right, 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 right. And just for those of you who are listening, who are like, wow, I have sent someone messages like that before online. Just know that we still love you. It's okay. Yes, it's okay. It's a moment in time where it's fine. Again, this is light. It's okay. No, no, I've said things I regret for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all do. Yeah, for sure. I, I know that, you know, when I was, yeah, I just, I'm going to leave it there because that's a, also a whole other podcast episode. I'm like, let's go through <laughs> all of the comments that I regret that I have posted on yes. social media to other people. Um, let's talk a little bit more about your book. I would absolutely, yeah. I'd love to hear more about it, why you decide to write this particular one. Yeah. So it's called Not Drinking Tonight, uh, A Guide to Creating a Sober Life You Love. And I really wrote it because I'm kind of, I've, I've love, you know, I love all the books that are out there that are on not drinking and, and taking a break from drinking, but a lot of them are memoirs, which is amazing. But I felt like there wasn't a book out there written by a therapist who also happens to be sober, who could combine like her personal experience in my case with also the therapeutic experience of helping people quit Mm. drinking because a lot of the books out there, like I said, they're memoirs, they're amazing, but they don't give you really specific tools for how to, how to stay, like how to, once you put down the alcohol, we talk a lot about how to get to the point of putting down the alcohol, but there isn't a ton of conversation about what happens when all my emotions come back up. What happens when I stop drinking and I can't go on a date? Or what happens when all my friends won't stop asking me, you know, why I keep drinking? And a lot of the book actually isn't specifically about not drinking because a lot of it is kind of like, what happens next? How do you stay stopped and and build a life that um, you don't need to use alcohol to escape anymore? Mm, I love that. And do you think that because I do feel like there is more of a sober, curious movement happening right now, which is so interesting, so cool. Do you think like I guess I I want to explore the difference between like a person who parties and somebody who's struggling with uh, alcohol substance use? Is that uh, sorry? I forgot. Okay, so I would love to know, like, what do you think that the difference is of? But of course, like acknowledging that there's like a thousand shades of gray here and that it's like for sure a spectrum. But what's like the biggest difference between like someone who parties hard and someone who's, you know, struggling with with alcohol substance use? 
Yeah, I think the biggest difference is really how it impacts their life. Specifically, to me, someone who's just partying um, isn't at a place, like doesn't feel like they're partying because they want to party, they want to have fun. It's still fun for them. It's not morphed into something that they feel like they have to do in order to maintain their lifestyle or they have to do to cope with emotions. And it's it's not negatively impacting their life in the same way that if someone starts to struggle with an alcohol use disorder, to me, it's negatively impacting their life in some capacity. And often they've tried to cut back or stop and they haven't been successful in that. Right. Okay. That totally makes sense. Because I do have some friends that like party really hard, but I'm not 100% sure that they would identify as like struggling. But at the same time, I'm like, you party really hard. Like, what (laughs) are you partying because you like partying? Are you partying to like escape kind of thing? And I guess there's like a, a way to be curious about that as well. Absolutely. And that was also part of why I wrote this book, because a lot of books on the topic are very sobriety only. And they're very like, moderation is a myth. This is the only way to do it. Alcohol is the devil. And while alcohol is absolutely an addictive substance, and we need to acknowledge that, I do think some people are able to drink moderately, and it's fine for them. And it doesn't impact their quality of life. Maybe it would Maybe their life, you know, would be objectively more fulfilling or they'd accomplish more or whatever if they drank. But I believe people get to choose. And that was a big reason I wrote the book also, because I'm honest about moderation and the research. And I talk about what might make it harder for you to moderate. Um, But I also talk about mindful drinking and how to, you know, engage with that if that's something that speaks to you more. I would, I'm just excited that people are exploring sober curiosity. My goal is not to force people to stop drinking or convince anyone. I just wanted to explain the research. I I go through the book and I have three case examples that are based on real clients and real conversations that we've had and show kind of the spectrum of, of why someone might question their relationship with alcohol and, and how to stop mm. and or take you- a break. Right, right. And do you mindfully drink or do you abstain from alcohol completely? I abstain from alcohol completely. And do you are I made this might be too personal of a question and it's totally okay and we can cut yeah. it out. Um do you ha- use any other substances? Like have you found that you can use cannabis or I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about any other substances, but if you use any other substances that you feel like you can use and it feels nice and enjoyable and very fun and it doesn't feel like it's an it's like you know an escape or that you're relying on it for anything. Yeah, I don't. Um I have no problem with people that do. I think that different things work for different people, so I'm really not against it. I think some of the research especially that's come out about psychedelics and stuff yes. like that is really promising. Yes. Um, Preach. But for me personally, because it's so intertwined with my eating disorder, it just feels, and things are going well, it just feels like a risk I'm not willing mm. to take. And I take antidepressants, which do work very well for me. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just started uh, my own and it's been a really wonderful journey. And I don't know how other substances would kind of mix and mingle with it. But I I think that like having 
substances that alter your consciousness, I think is 100 is I think it's a honestly, I think it's a very normal human thing to want to do. And, you know, we've been using substances um, like cannabis or ayahuasca or psilocybin for literally ever, like for so long. And obviously indigenous cultures have continued to use them in sacred and spiritual ways. And it really does like looking at the research on psilocybin and MDMA and ketamine and LSD and the way that it interacts with uh, PTSD or depression or anxiety is so fucking interesting and so cool that it's, and it is, it is interesting that alcohol is not part of that, you know, Mm -hmm. that there are not studies that are done and there isn't, I'm, I don't know, maybe some point, I don't know, but that there aren't studies that are done that it's just like, yeah, we can like a session with a therapist, like with a bottle of wine is going to be as effective as like a session with a therapist microdosing LSD. Like I think that um, it's interesting that psychedelics in general seem to be very effective for helping Mm -hmm. treat certain conditions. And I just think it's so cool. I think it's so cool. And I think the more that we talk about it, the less stigmatizing it will be for people. Absolutely. And as a therapist myself, I can understand how, I mean, I think to potentially answer your question about alcohol, I think what's hard about alcohol compared to psychedelics in a therapy sense, like if I were imagining doing a session with someone who was drinking versus a psychedelic, alcohol just kind of turns off the part of your brain that makes decisions. It kind of just numbs you. Mm. So it doesn't really do anything to promote other areas of waking up where LSD and some other drugs like that do um, help you kind of like they do according, I'm going to mess this up because I don't know the research off the top of my head, but they like wake up other parts of your brain and uh, they make you more open, I think, to different conversations and things like that from what I gather at least. Mm, Right. Yep. 100%. And when can people get your book? When, When is this out? Yeah, so it's available for pre-order now, but it comes out January 4th, just in time for dry January. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, incredible. I know that people will definitely get value from it. I'm going to read it. Um, I'm mostly sober. I think that I might drink like about once a year and it's usually celebratory and it usually has something to do with like travel and being in a place yeah. that I'm in and and kind of like doing something within that like either microculture or subculture or within the culture that I'm currently experiencing, but I haven't drank in so long because of COVID and the pandemic. And it's just not something that feels good for my body or my mind or anything like that. But I have not read any books on being sober and and being yeah. sober curious. So I'm very, very, very excited to read this. And of course, I'm like going to geek out at the science that you've cited and the research studies that you put into it. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited for that. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Is there anything else that you'd love listeners to know? Um, I wanted to just add in really quickly about what you were saying about studies and humans and stuff like that. One of my favorite parts of the book, I have a whole chapter on evolutionary psychology and I talk all about like our brains and how we were wired. And I did a ton of research on how humans actually started drinking alcohol to begin with. And similar to what you were saying, like it makes sense that we want to numb. And I talk a lot in the book about kind of, you know, like our, our brains stopped evolving during the stone age and our brains aren't really evolved for the current society we live in. And Mm. I really aim in the book to 
obviously there's lots of things that need to change in the world, but I tried to give all my best tools for how to take care of yourself and live a life that um, you love in the, you know, despite the fact that our brains aren't evolved for this, (laughs) this current climate. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So there was also this one situation that we both came across on Instagram and it had to do with the intuitive fasting book by Dr. Will Cole, which I have, I still haven't talked to him on this podcast and I still do want to. Um, but I, I put down the conversation because when I began the conversation with him and with the community, I was also moving at the time and it was just so chaotic and I haven't picked it back up. But you reached out to me and, you know, and you were, and rightly so, you know, you were like, I'm curious, like, what are your, what, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Like, you have you been chatting with him? Yeah. Um, and you and I talked and chatted about like, what does it look like having conversations with someone that you really <laughs> actively disagree with that you think is like, you know, spreading harmful stuff? Yeah. And I think what's like where I, and I don't know the answer to this either is like, I think about what does it look like to give someone a platform to sometimes Mm. I think about that. You know what I mean? Like sometimes when we're angry, we're almost sharing things more and it's like, is this really helping or am I making other people now interested in this and going to go look at this and Mm. giving them a platform? Yeah, totally. And like, how do you, and this is, this is, this might be completely rhetorical because I'm not quite sure either one of us have the answer to it. And it's like, how do you have conversations with people that, yeah, that you're like, I don't necessarily want to platform this information, but at the same time, I want to have a public conversation so people can hear proper discourse. And you want to be able to, I was actually listening to this last night in regards to social media and just sense-making in general. Mm -hmm. Where there's this idea that kind of like you should let people be exposed to any idea, anything Mm. at any point, whatever. And it's their responsibility to for discernment and it's their Mm. intellectual responsibility to make sense of it and make a decision based on it. And if they don't make the right decision, well, fuck it. Who cares? That's their that that's on them. And I don't. Right. And they almost might need to learn. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I but I also feel a little bit. I don't necessarily lean towards that completely because there's an element to it where our minds are so vulnerable on social media Mm -hmm. and if we're going through something and we're not in the right headspace and we come across something like intuitive fasting, let's say, which is just – I can't even say the sentence. I can't even say that phrase. Um, It's so odd, but we come across it and it might be like, oh, well, maybe this is – this is legitimate. And it's a, you know, and he is a doctor and, and, um, right. you know, and, and I don't want to talk too much about him in particular, just cause he's like not here to chat about it himself, but someone might in a vulnerable headspace who has done so much, you know, separating from diet culture and knows that this isn't the way forward, they might like consider it in that moment or something. And it's like, do we not also have a responsibility to be fact checking or filtering out these things that are coming up and you know what's the better thing to do like silence things and kind yeah. of like protect people or put it out in the world and just like have it as like a free for all and I'm yeah I have no absolutely no clue but I also really appreciate it cuz you're one of the only therapists that messaged me about it to actually have a conversation um yeah. I know that there were some people that were mad that I had 
because my whole thing is like I'm pretty against cancel culture and I'm not 100% yeah. sure where you stand with that. And it's okay. I don't. That's not – that doesn't have to be this conversation. But people were messaging him like really insensitive things yeah. about the way that he looked and his family. And like, you know, they were like before he – before they even read the book, they were rating it like right. one star on Amazon. And I'm not 100% sure about that, like specifically about the Amazon thing. You know, I don't necessarily think that that's like best practice. I obviously do do not think that it's okay for people to message him hateful right. or hurtful things. And there were some people that were upset that I said like, hey, he actually got in contact with me and said he'd mm-hmm. like to have a conversation with me about it. That to me is a positive interaction and it's hopeful. Can you guys not message him right. really hateful shit? And people were, you know, said the sort of like, why are you like defending him? And like, that's like not okay. If he's putting out hurtful things in the world, then it doesn't matter how we treat him. And I'm like, it 100% matters. What are you talking about? Absolutely, it matters. And you were one of the only what, one of the only therapists, if not the only one, to message me to say like, "Hey, I'm like, I'm having me like these thoughts on this situation. I'd like (laughs) like, to like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah, 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 totally, totally. (laughs) Like how, like how, and and we had such a good conversation about it. Just Mm like, um. I haven't listened to our voice notes in a while on it, but um, just like talking about like, like, yeah, like what what's like the right way to to go about this? How do you like explore these like potentially harmful ideas and these harmful topics in a very thoughtful way, basically? And yeah, and you were one of the only ones to reach out like that. It was wonderful. Yeah, so I- thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think Kenzie, again, I don't really have the answer either, but I think one thing that I struggle with is it's, I, I agree that if everyone, if there was no bad intentions, if people weren't trying to take advantage of people, if there was more regulations if things, if people weren't to gain making a lot of money for essentially tricking people and lying to people and manipulating people, which sometimes advertisements and, and things like that happen, then I would kind of be like everyone, we should expose everyone to everything. Mm. I think where it gets hard is when it's like undue influence, when it's things aren't properly fact-checked. We're so inundated with information. Most of us don't have the time or the energy to fact-check things. So we trust sources that we believe are credible. Mm -hmm. For some people, that is a news outlet. For some people, that is Reddit. For some people, it's social media and certain people on social media. And I think that's where I get really torn because I think people can take advantage of people and this even just, I mean, this is a whole nother conversation, but thinking about like the trial that's happening kind of with Instagram or mm-hmm. meta, I guess, now as they're calling themselves. Oh my God. Um, right. Like, oh yeah. Cause you're in Canada. So yeah, this is happening in the United States and that some of the senators are saying, you've told us to trust you, to trust you, to trust you. And we, we don't trust you anymore based mm-hmm. on this data, based on some of the whistleblowers and we need an independent company, you know, to evaluate this and stuff. And that's kind of how I feel about social media and media in general, I think is like, I just don't trust people to have good intentions sometimes. Mm, Totally. I mean, and you're right to not trust it. You're, you know, to, to be conservative with your trust or to hesitate. You're very right because people have misused platforms to spread harmful rhetoric or to just spread ideas that they believe in, but that, you know, we might think that isn't, isn't good. And I do think that 
you know, it is important to be very mindful of that, that like, you know, I disagree with like the Joe Rogans of the world that are just like, well, we should platform everybody and just let people just let it basically be a free for all. You know, it's like, no, actually Alex Jones does not need any more airtime. Like, no, we can, (laughs) we can all successfully agree and say that like Alex Jones does not need to spread more harmful bullshit. So, I, I hear you. And I don't think that there is like a perfect answer other than like being mindful and be trying to be thoughtful about it and like go slowly, you know, like trying to like figure yeah. it out slowly and like not do things because it's like hot or trendy or because um, it's extreme and therefore it's like sensational and any of those things. So I Bye. I totally hear you on that. But thank you so much for engaging in this conversation with me. I learned a ton and it was so nice to hear a little bit more about your story. And I'm really, 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 really excited for your book and congratulations on writing it because it's it's a good one. It's really good. Just from the few pages that I flipped through, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited to get the hardcover of it. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for you to read it. And I loved this conversation, Kenzie. This was awesome. I love your podcast in general. So it was just so great Uh, to connect with you beyond Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, likewise. And where can everybody find you online? Yeah, so you can find me. My Instagram is Therapy for Women. Uh, That's also my TikTok if you want to see any of my Taylor Swift content. (laughs) And um, my website is therapyforwomencenter.com. Perfect. Thank you again, Amanda. Thank you. All right, friends, you made it to the end of the episode. You know what to do now. Head over to our Instagram account, Conversations with Kenzie, and let us know what you loved about the episode. Or let us know what you didn't love. What questions did we miss? What questions could we have asked differently? Let us know there. As always, stay curious, keep asking questions, and keep making conversations in your everyday life. Until next time.